And so what we're going to do is in two weeks, this week and next week, we're going to look at the Bible. We're going to look at how to read the Bible and the, the kind of study of hermeneutics, which is very simply a study of correct methods of interpretation. And it's been going on for years since we had the written word. People have been going, how do we interpret it correctly? What tools do we bring to it? And how do we, we get it done? Like, how do we make sure that what we're reading is what God wanted us to read? And what we're understanding is what God wanted us to understand. And so that's what hermeneutics is. But as I was prepping for the hermeneutics side of it, I realized you can't talk hermeneutics without first talking about a theology of the Bible. What do we actually think about the Bible? What does the Bible say about itself? What do we believe about this? Because actually what you believe about the Bible is going to then inform how you read the Bible and interpret the Bible. So you've actually got to start with a theology of the Bible before you can get into that. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look very high level and quickly, and I've got going deeper resources that I can hand out, but and a theology of the Bible, what the Bible says about itself. And then we're going to ask the question at the end of today. We've got, I've got a handout. Given the reality of what we believe about our Bibles, how then do we think we should read our Bibles? And you're going to be quick. There's individually, I'm going to give you a list, and you're going to go, this is what I, it's given what we've just agreed upon, and we're going to have a bit of interaction around this, what we've just agreed upon, the, what the Bible says about itself. How should we read it? And then we're going to try and pick our hermeneutical approach. And then next week, we're going to unpack that hermeneutical approach. Um, and we're going to see what, what, how you actually apply it, how you use it, what it looks like, and why it's helpful. Make sense? Okay. So what I want to do is I want to, I want to give us a problem. If you are on the eldest time away, you've heard this, but I want to give us a problem and then show you why this is so important, what we're talking about is so important. Okay. I'm a man, so I'm going to take the example of a man. You take a man 200 years ago, okay, in Anglo-Saxon, let's say, somewhere in Europe, okay, so 200 years ago, you have a man. He has two internal things going on inside of him. This is a Tim Keller example, and it's great. He's got two internal things going inside of him. One internal thing going on inside of him, or thought going inside of him, is a sense of same-sex attraction. So he's got the sense of same-sex attraction. I'm attracted to the same sex. The other thing going on inside of him is this deep belief that honor matters, that, I, that honor matters, the honor of um, me as a man matters, and the honor of my family matters, and honor is a significant thing. And if anybody dishonors me, it is legitimate for me to act violently in response to that. Those two beliefs exist in this person. Back in the day, someone dishonored you, your family, your wife, someone, you pick up a glove, you slap them in the face, and you challenge them to a duel. And that was legitimate. It's like, cool, that's what you do. You were dishonored, and the honor of the family mattered a lot. So violence to dishonor was a legitimate expression. So 200 years ago, I suppress my sense of same-sex attraction because that would be dishonorable, and I'd bring dishonor on the family. But I express violence towards anyone who would dishonor me. That's 200 years ago. You take the exact same man and you bring him to today. And now exists in our society today. And what's going on in his heart is the same two things. But it's so different. Because now it would be dishonorable for that man in our culture and time to not express his same-sex attraction. And it would be incredibly dishonorable for that man to act violently when he's dishonored. That would be a thing of shame. 200 years. What was right is now wrong. What was wrong is now right. How does that happen? 
Why does that happen? Now, we can't unpack why it happens. That's another talk entirely. But I think what I want to show us is, well, what is right? Is it the 200-year-ago man who's right or, the, or the, the now man that's right? What's going on in his heart? And there's this um, person called Something Taylor, and he's a Jewish sociologist, and he's, he gives this helpful term, this helpful phrase that I want to introduce us to called the social imaginary. And this idea of the social imaginary is that every single culture is bound by time and a space and sometimes a geographically, and they will have an intrinsic sense of what is true, what is good, and what is right. But that is not necessarily the same between every culture, and it's not necessarily the same between times, over time. And that's what's going on here, is that over here, 200 years ago, the social imaginary is that we suppress same-sex attraction, we express violence when we're dishonored. Now, the social imaginary says what we sense to be intrinsically true is I express same-sex attraction and I suppress any um, desire towards violence. And this social imaginary is what he calls the different kind of, and it's not necessarily what you, you, you believe to be true, it's that thing, in, what you would state explicitly, this is what I believe, it's that thing inside of you that goes, this is intrinsically true, this is what's right, that gut reaction to a moment is what he's talking about when he talks about the social imaginary. Now you've got to ask, because this, I'm getting to why this is important, so stick with me. You've got to ask, um, what informs that? Why is it so different between those, those two groups of people? And what informs a social imaginary is academic thought at a very small, in universities and things, they think thoughts, they think ideas, this is how society works, this is how we should think, this is what, there is a God, there isn't a God, there is this, there isn't that, this is what it means to be a person, this is not what it means, and there's a whole lot of thought that goes on there. But that, we don't, not many people read what those people are talking about, but those ideas and those thoughts permeate into a society through stories, through the heroes of that society. So whatever um, we put on the pedestal, whatever heroes we put on the pedestal, we start to imbibe their values and the ways that they think, and stories inform our social imaginary. A great example of a story that's informing our social imaginary is modern family. So Modern Family is an amazing um, case study because when it first started, Cam and Mitch, controversial. Can I, as a Christian, even watch this series? 12 years or whatever it is, eight years later, bang. Oh, Cam and Mitch, they're the best family ever. I love watching Modern Family. New York Times writes an article at the end that Mitch and Cam have forever changed the way America views gay marriage. Here's the catch. They're not real. There's a whole bunch of people in a room writing the story, creating this perfect family that exists independent of any sense of reality. But what that story does is it plays on our emotions, it, pay, it plays on our empathy in such a way that we connect it to our hearts. And we, I mean, when it connects to our heart through emotion, we immediately say what is happening on that screen is true. We're not doing that um, consciously, we're doing it subconsciously. So then we start to frame every gay marriage or everything we hear about gay marriage through this lens of a story which has captured our empathy, which has captured our emotions, as opposed to actually what is true, what is the real expression, what is really going on. And so these stories inform our social imaginary. That is why it's changed so much from 200 years to now, the social imaginary has changed. So stories, what else can inform our social imaginary? Well, in this day and age, what's also informed our social imaginary is the gospel. We now live post 
Christianity, where the gospel has taken root in our society, in our culture, it is well known, it's well expressed, people have been churched and well churched, that also informs our social imaginary. So we've got these stories from culture informing our social imaginary, we've got the gospel informing our social imaginary, um, we've got our own personal stories and history um, informing our social imaginary and experiences. And all these things come together to give us a sense of what is intrinsically true, that gut reaction to any moment. But can you see how dangerous it is to give it the authority of the moral compass? It's this idea that this is pointing to true north. What I, my gut response is, that's true north. But actually it's not. It's been informed by so many things and it changes from century to century, culture to culture. So that's the reason I start there and the reason I frame this whole conversation like that is, how do we know what is true then? Because God would say we have a conscience, but that's been seared, that there's sin that also informs us, and we've got all these other influences that influence us. How do we know what is true if we can't trust our feelings as a moral compass, a true north? That's why we get to the scriptures. <laughs> we need something between the 200 years that's that, that we can hang on to and go, this points me to truth, this points me to a true north, this points me to something that is, that is constant and consistent and says the same thing, no matter what social imaginary I throw this book into, does it say the same thing? And what's so amazing is that this Bible, 200 years ago, would have said the exact same thing to that man with same-sex attraction, and he wanted to use violence to defend his own, um, what's the word, honor, to the man 200 years later who has same-sex attraction, the Bible would speak the same thing to that man and his internal battles. Okay, so that's why we're having this conversation. That's why we're talking about the importance of Scripture, why we're talking about, because there is no true compass, there is no true north apart from the Word of God. Well, at least that's what we believe as Christ followers. Okay, which is why outside in culture, it really has come down to live your truth. You do you. Who am I to tell you how to live? Who are you to tell me how to live? Because we've lost any sense of moral truth or compass or guidance or, or way that we're called to live. And so the highest authority now has become personal preference and opinion. Okay, so the claims of this Bible are massive. They really are massive. And if we live out the theology of what the Bible says about itself, it's got some big claims on our lives. It's got some big claims on our thinking. It's got some big claims on the way that we do everything. So we need to settle this early on in our walk with Jesus. Now, here's the thing. is that the Bible, this is a circular argument. You're going to pick it up quite quickly. How do we know that the Bible is the ultimate authority? Because the Bible tells us it's the ultimate authority. The scriptures tell us that it's the ultimate authority. But can you see the circular argument? The Bible is the ultimate authority. How do you know? Because the Bible tells me so. It's circular. The one depends on the other. And that, that is problematic. If anybody's ever done coding, as soon as you have a circular argument, the computer just shuts down and breaks, basically, or spits out an error code. does not work. And that can make people panic. It can make you feel like, oh, well, we're on shaky ground that the Bible tells itself that it's... It's um, its own authority. And I'd say to you, no, because as soon as you do any authority claim, it's going to be a circular argument because you're trying to speak to ultimate authority. And ultimate, as soon as you have an authority above an ultimate authority telling you that this is the ultimate authority, 
it's no longer the ultimate authority, the thing telling it. So you ha when you get to ultimate authority, it has to be self-revealing, self-declaring. And so you might have a few things that circular, and, we, and people are unfair with Christianity when it comes to the circular argument, because what they'll say is they'll say, oh, you have a circular argument that the Bible is the final authority, therefore I reject it. But actually, they themselves have circular arguments. So people who base logic, Logical consistency is my ultimate authority because it is logical that it be so. It's a circular argument. The findings of a human sensory experience are the ultimate authority for discovering what is real and what is not because our human senses have never discovered anything else. Thus, human sense experience tells me this principle is true. That, what that person is saying, if I haven't touched it, it's not real because I haven't touched it. You see, it's an, it's an authority claim. I know there can be no ultimate authority because I do not know of any such ultimate authority. Making oneself the ultimate authority is a circular argument. So as soon as you get to any claim about ultimate authority, it's going to be circular because ultimate authority has to be self-revealing. Does that make sense? Is that clear? And it's really important. But here's the beauty of the scriptures. Is the scriptures speak about themselves as the ultimate authority, but we also have these moments of a God himself, a living God. So you have the mountain, the burning bush. God breaks in and goes, speaks to Moses and says, I am the ultimate authority and I'm going to give you the law. And Moses gets the written law from something outside of, its, of the scriptures. God, who's put on this massive display how he is the ultimate authority. And I give you these words so we can trust him. We also have, to have at the center of human history this person, Jesus who lived and died and rose again, and that there's accounts of that life and him having done what he said he did. And he himself, Jesus says, I give complete authority to these scriptures. So from outside of the scriptures, just speaking to themselves, you have a living God going, these are my words and I'm the ultimate authority. So it's not a pure circular argument when it comes to the scriptures. Um, this, and, and so therefore what we believe is that we believe that the, the scriptures in written form are the ultimate authority in the Christ follower's life, that they're the very words of God who is the ultimate authority. This is what, we, this is what our little we believe about the Bible says, uh, Common Ground. We believe the Bible, every verse in all 66 books originated with God. Though it was written by chosen authors, it speaks with the authority of God while at the same time reflecting the background, styles, and vocabularies of these human authors. In its original manuscript, it is infallible, it is inerrant. So it, it's without fault and it's without mistake, without error. It is the full and final authority on all matters of faith and practice. No other writing is similarly inspired by God, nor comes close to having its life-transforming potential. Therefore, it is to be thoroughly and <laughs> diligently, not digitally, <laughs> diligently and happily and prayerfully read, taught, memorized, meditated upon, understood and applied, believed and obeyed. There's a lot there. We're going to unpack it under four headings. Authority, clarity, necessity, and sufficiency. Those are the four characteristics that we know about the Bible. Authority, clarity, necessity, and sufficiency is kind of captured in that paragraph. 
And these are the four things, characteristics that the Bible speaks about itself. And these things have implications. And I really don't want this to be a time, and, and as, as a staff, this is so important that we know how to read our Bibles and we understand what our Bibles, what we believe about our Bibles. Because half the problems, theological disagreements, sin in our lives, disputes, our lack of love and tenderness towards each other, often all track back not to a conversation over there, what we believe about sexuality, all the, all the arguments that we have with us internally and externally don't often start where the arguments are. They actually start right back here about what we believe about the Bible. And if we get this right, so much is sorted out going forward. Okay, so now around your tables, if you're by yourself, Kat, Jeff, you guys, all the, all, all the extroverts can go and sit at a table together. You know you're an extrovert because you're sitting by yourself. Introvert because you're sitting by yourself. Okay, so go and find someone. We're just going to have some conversation quickly. Okay, when I say that the Bible, um, one of the characteristics of the Bible is that it is the final authority, what does that mean for you? What are the implications for you? Chat about that around your table. Okay, so authority of the Scriptures means a few things. One, it means that all the words, all the words, all the words, let me say that again, all the words, all the words in Scripture are God's words, all of them. In the original manuscript, obviously not the translations, but the original manuscript, all the words in Scripture are God's words. That means when you're going through, <laughs> through those genealogies, when you're going through Leviticus, all the words, of God are God's words. Okay, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. It's clear. Now that scripture, that word being scripture is a technical word. It probably is Paul speaking more to the Old Testament in this context. So all, those, all of us who want to throw out the Old Testament, that this is him going, all scripture. And in this context, predominantly speaking about the Old Testament. But then you get to 2 Peter and there's this theological debate and stuff going on. And you see that Peter sees the letters of Paul as scripture. There are some things in them that are uh, 2 Peter 3, verse 16. Actually, I'll just, read, I'll just read the chunk from 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Sorry, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. By who? By God. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Now here's the key verse. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. So here we have Peter putting Paul's writings and letters in the same category as the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. So there's no getting away. I, I was contemplating getting into how the scriptures are canonized. We can't, it's just too big. John Piper does five hours of lectures just on that. You can go and listen to that. But here we see the New Testament saying not only are all the Old Testament scriptures, but the new letters too. You have 1 Timothy 5, 18, which quotes um, from Luke, Jesus' words in Luke, for the scriptures say, and he then quotes 
the Gospel of Luke. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. The laborer deserves his wages, quoting Jesus from the book of Luke. So you see the scriptures, they see the New Testament Gospels, the writings of Paul as scripture. So all the words in scripture are God's words. Okay, that's what it means by authority. B, or the second point, therefore to disbelieve or disobey any word of scripture is to disobey or disbelieve God. This is kind of where the rubber hits the road. To disbelieve or disobey a single word in scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. That's the implication of the scripture. Okay. And then, so that's, that's the one implication. Therefore, to disbelieve or disobey any of the words of scripture is to disobey or disbelieve God. We could spend a whole chunk of time just chatting about the implication of that when you're reading your Bible and going through it. And... Um, we need to unpack that and chat about it and go, what does this actually mean? And we're going to get to that when we get to the hermeneutics next week. Because this, remember, we're laying down a foundation of our word and then we're going to learn how we interpret these things. And then three, when it comes to the authority of Scripture, that, that the Scriptures are truthful. The implication is that the Scriptures are truthful. If these are the words of God and the very authority of God goes with these words, every single word is true. Titus 1-2, Paul, the servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So if these are the words of a God who never lies, every single word in the scriptures are truthful. They are true. They speak truth. Okay, so those are kind of the implications. Can you see how this matters? Can we see how it matters? Okay. Then the second kind of characteristic around this scriptures is clarity. This is a very interesting one, clarity. And what the scriptures say about themselves in terms of clarity is this, and I'm going to read the definition, and then I want you to discuss the definition. What does it mean? What jars you? What stands out? What, do you, what questions come up? Okay? You're going to do that around your table. So listen to this definition. The clarity of the Scriptures means that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who read it, seeking God's help, being willing to follow it. Okay. Discuss that around your tables. You want me to read it again? The clarity of Scripture means that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. Okay, clarity. The Bible is clear to all who read it. Okay, so basically the, the theology or the clarity of Scripture or the characteristic is that the Bible affirms its own clarity. The Bible affirms its own clarity. Deuteronomy 6 um, says this, verse 6. So this is literally the, the great commandments having been given. And it says, listen, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Teach them to your children. Teach them to your children. These are words, these commands, these ways of God, the words of God are able to be taught to children. It's why we have Kids Rock. If, this, if the Bible wasn't clear enough for children, then you've got a question. Okay. So these words are meant to be understood and be able to be taught to children. 
Psalm 19, verse 7, the unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. That's why I can read the Bible and teach the Bible, because it imparts understanding to the simple. I don't bring my understanding to the Bible. It brings its understanding to me. Okay, so the Bible is clear, and it's able to be read. It's able to be understood. And what's so interesting about this is that Jesus and the apostles never ever put blame on the scriptures for where the Pharisees had got it wrong. Jesus and the apostles never put blame on the scriptures for where the Pharisees and others got it wrong. They always put blame for misunderstanding, misinterpretation, and the misuse of scriptures on the moral character of people. So it's not that the scriptures are not clear, when there's diverse interpretations and readings and exegesis of the text, it's that we are broken, we are unclear, and we don't have always the moral standing or um, the correct heart attitude towards the scriptures that brings the diversity of it. So Jesus and the apostles never put the blame on the scriptures for a lack of clarity, it's always put on people, which means that there is a moral and spiritual qualities needed in a person to rightly understand the word of God. Let me say that again, that there are moral and spiritual qualities needed in a person to rightly understand the word of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 4, the unspiritual man does not receive the gifts, that word gifts is probably things, does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You see that, that there is a moral character. I love what Michael Eaton used to say. He said, if you come to the Bible with a minimum faith, it's not gonna make sense to you and you're gonna, you're gonna abuse people and the scriptures. But if you come to the Bible with maximum faith and humility, you're gonna mine the depth of what it has to offer you. It is a book that is meant to be approached with humility and faith because it is the book of God who we approach with humility, and faith. Okay, so the moral and spiritual qualities needed to understand the scriptures. What was that, please? That's 1 Corinthians 2.4. And what this means is that whatever the Bible reveals about, because it is truthful, because it is authority, because it is clear, that whatever the Bible reveals about God can be known to be true and clear and good, and when, and that's why when you see through history, this these different kind of theological positions on things, or the Bible being abused in the most horrible way to abuse people or oppress people, God, Jesus, and the apostles and the scriptures never put that blame on the scriptures; they put it on the people. So when the scriptures are used to justify apartheid, that doesn't sit with the scriptures; it sits with people who have an ungodly agenda who are bringing that to the word to make it say something it never said. And we do, I do this. I do this all the time. I come to the word in my quiet time with an agenda or something I need to hear or want. And then that's when I become blind to what the word has to say. But when I come to the words and I go, I am under you, you're above me, and I'm gonna open you up, speak to me, read me, help me understand you. We should always pray a prayer before we read the scriptures. Holy Spirit, help me to see what it is that you're saying. Without your help, I can't see. Okay, there's a reality to that being needed. Okay, I think it's been clear. The responsibility for misunderstanding disagreements on Scripture rests on the reader, not the Scriptures. That's what the Scriptures say. So we need to check our own hearts, motivations, and agendas, faith, and willingness to obey. 
Okay. Okay. Then we're going to get into necessity. This is the third one. The Bible is necessary. So without the Bible, there is a whole bunch of stuff that we can't know about God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the Bible is necessary? <laughs> if we believe the Bible is necessary, we read it every day. Like the psalmist says, I delight in your word and I meditate it on, on a day and night. You only delight in it to meditate on a day and night when you believe that it is necessary, that I can't live my life and I can't live a, faith, a life of faith and obedience towards God if I'm not in the scriptures. It is necessary. It's not secondary. It's not a nice to have. It's not a supplement. It's not that vitamin. It is necessary. It is, you can't live a Christian life without the word of God. And so what does the Bible say about this? I want everybody to open up Romans 10. In your, on your Bibles, everyone to open up Romans 10. And around your table, someone's going to read it, and then you're going to discuss what this says about it. Romans 10, 13. And I'll tell you what. what just open up to Romans 10 and start reading 13, because I don't have the end of it. Read up to 18. 13 to 18. Okay, the very first reason that the Bible is necessary from Romans 10 is that we can't know the gospel apart from it. Okay, so you have Jesus, he comes in, he declares the gospel, he lives the gospel, he dies on the cross, he is the gospel, a person, not a book. He pours out his spirit and he gives us leaders in the church who then write scripture, declaring the gospel and the goodness of the gospel. So now the gospel is captured in words in the book. Apart from this book, you can't know this, the gospel. God's got to declare it. It is in this book through the, those eyewitness accounts of the apostles and the writers of Scripture that we now know the gospel and we know what is true about the gospel and we know what is not true about the gospel. We know what the extent of the gospel is. We know what it isn't. We know what it is. Does that make sense? So we need the Word of God to have a knowledge of the gospel. The second thing is we need the Word of God to maintain our spiritual life, to maintain our spiritual life. Matthew 4, 4. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see that? You need the Word of God. You can't live on bread. You can't live on stuff. You need the Word of God for spiritual life. 1 Peter 2 speaks of pure spiritual milk. It's speaking of the Word. If you want to grow up, you need the pure spiritual milk of the Scriptures of the Word of God. The Bible is necessary for certain knowledge of God's will. So yes, we have a conscience, but we've just seen how in a social imaginary and with a sinful nature, I'll get to your question now, in a social imaginary and a sinful nature, how our conscience can be corrupted and informed by so many other things. And in fact, Paul speaks about the not, that people refuse to see what, even what is noble about God from creation, people refuse to see it because their consciences are seared. And so we need the word of God so that we can have a knowledge of God and his commands and his ways and what he asks of us and requires of us. Oh, sorry. 1 Peter 2.2. 2. Okay. But this, what this does mean is that the Bible is not necessary to know that God exists. Psalm 9.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. A creation in heavens are a canvas in which God puts his existence on display, which is why I love the fact that the, the unbelievable podcast, he brings on a whole bunch of Christian scientists. And the facts are that there are probably more Christian scientists than there are atheist scientists because the more people investigate creation, the more they find themselves in awe and wonder of a designer, one who created it all. 
Acts 14, God, Acts 14, verses 6, uh, 16 to 7, kind of gives this idea that God's goodness is seen in the fact that he even gives rain and that he, he, is, he lets there be fruitful seasons, that the fact that the crops grow and the rain comes and the sun is out are all evidence of a creator God and that God is around. Romans 1.19 also speaks to the reality of we can know God from creation. So you don't need the Bible to know that God exists, but you do need the Bible to know the detail around the gospel to maintain your spiritual life and to have knowledge of God's will for you as a Christ follower. The scriptures are all we need to understand what God has to say on any given thing. So anything that, oh no, wait, I've jumped over, sorry, I've jumped over to the sufficiency. So that's, um, that's the necessity of scriptures. It's pretty clear and standard in the scriptures speak to that. So the next one is the sufficiency of scripture, the fourth and final one, the sufficiency. Let me read a th- definition of this. The, f- the sufficiency of scripture means that the scriptures contain all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history, and that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. So the Old Testament was sufficient for those of the Old Testament, and as Jesus came and more was revealed about the purposes and plans, the mysteries of heaven were revealed, the mysteries of God were revealed in the gospel. New scriptures were written by the apostles, and now it's closed. Now we have the full. We believe that we have the full sufficiency of what we need for life and faith and obedience. The scriptures are sufficient. I want you to chat about the implications of that quickly around your tables. What is? What are the implications of the scriptures being sufficient? Okay, here we go. The implications of the scriptures being sufficient. I want to just read Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. I love this text. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. So God hasn't completely and utterly revealed everything about himself. God is unknowable. We'll spend all of eternity learning new things about God. We're never going to get bored because there's going to be more to learn. But God has revealed sufficiently what we need to know. And everything that is secret belongs to him and everything that he's revealed belongs to us. That's the idea of sufficiency. And that we have absolutely everything that we need between these two covers. That we don't, everything that God has wanted to say he has said in these words. We need nothing beyond these words to understand what God wants us to know about him and understand about him. So that means that the scriptures are all we need on any given topic. Anything that you have a question about, you can go and you want to know what God has to say about it, you go to the scriptures. If God is silent on it, then we get to use wisdom and insight and other scriptures to make our best decisions about things and free to choose. That's why we must never, where the Bible is silent, never make it a thing. <laughs> I hate it when churches and pastors and people make something the Bible's horribly, not horribly, completely silent on a thing. How do you make something the Bible silent on a thing? If the Bible doesn't deem it important, it's not as important. So at least it's not a thing of division between Christ followers. 
And God has given us wisdom and understanding and everything that we need to know about life and faith is, 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 is in here. Everything that God wants us to know is in here, which is really important because everything else is supplementary then. People have written amazing books. People have preached amazing sermons. There are amazing courses out there. There are amazing insights and wisdom of humans and all that stuff is good. It's not bad, but it's not on the same level of Scripture. And it's always under the authority of Scripture. And we don't need those things to understand what God has for us. What I love about that is that I can take this book and apart from me, I can literally lob it into any culture throughout history and I don't have to go with it. And if they open it up and start to read these pages, they will have everything they need to know God, enjoy God and live a life holy to God. Holy as in H-O-L-Y. Okay. Um, which is amazing. It means that I'm not needed, but God chooses to use me at times and use you at times to unpack these words and make them knowable to people by, by his spirit. But we're not needed. This is what's needed. Um, the amount of scripture is sufficient. That means we don't add to it. So nothing gets added to it as equal to scripture. Said it all. Great. So those are the, the four things that we need to know about Scripture. And honestly, we could have done an hour on each of them and unpacked them and the implications, but I didn't think that would serve. So the sufficiency of Scripture, the um, necessity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, and the authority of Scripture. What that all says to us is that, as a Christ follower, our whole lives center around this book before it centers around anything else because this is how we get to know and enjoy God and get to know Him better. Obviously, His Spirit is poured out. It's always Word and Spirit, please. I don't, I don't clarify that because I don't separate them. The Word and Spirit are one. They never contradict each other. They are together. They highlight the, You can't read the words without the Spirit. You can't know the Spirit without the words. So you need both and they're together. So I never separate spirit and word, please. I'm not one of those people, just Bible and spirit's done with us. No, spirit and word is the theology. But that means that this book is incredibly precious and important to us. Now, this is what I realize is, is so important around the theology of the scriptures is because we have this social imaginary that is so informed by the stories of our time and the culture of time and stories are so powerful. We swim in our social imaginary. We're fish. Fish don't know they're in water. They're just in water. And our social imaginary is the water that we swim in. We don't even know. Laura is, I'm driving Laura mad because now whenever we watch series, I'm like, that's not true. I'm like, I just had an emotional response to that, but it's not true. It's just giving me empathy towards a cause, but that's a story. It's not true. It's, it's manipulated my emotions. So now I have an affinity towards that cause or that agenda that actually if I was out in the world and I encountered it, it would probably look very different to how it's being presented to me. And so now I see it everywhere. I'm like, ah, oh, I'm starting to see the water I swim in. But here's the point is that what's informing us? What's shaping us? Is it Netflix? Yes, definitely. Is it media? Yes, definitely. Is it social media? Yes, definitely. Is it the stories of people around us? Yes, definitely. Is it the scriptures? Not so definite. We're the least biblical literate generation ever of Christ followers, which is why so often when we come to the words of God and we read something, we go, whoa, that's so jarring. I'm just gonna put that aside and go and watch Netflix because what's on Netflix rings truer to us than what's in the scriptures because we're not steeped in them, we're not swimming in them. This needs to become the reality that we swim in, that informs us, that shapes us, that guides us. And 
biblical categories of thinking should be the thing that shapes the categories in our mind and that everything is being assessed through, through this book. We look onto the world through this book and we put everything into these categories because what's happening at the moment is actually what's in front of this book is our social imaginary, which for me represents Netflix. And we look through this book, we look through Netflix and we let it shape this book. And we start to go, not that, not that. Won't apply that, won't apply that, or don't like that. And it should be the other way around. Not that, not that, not that through this book. Does that make sense? Which is why it's so important that we have these conversations. Okay, so that's the, the theology of the scriptures and a bit about the scriptures. And next week, we're going to get into hermeneutics. But God's going to hand out a page to each person individually now. This is going to take a, a fair amount of time um, just to read. But what I want you to do is I want you to read this page one and a half pages and on it it has different hermeneutical approaches I want you to do it as an individual no one else is going to see this page given the theology of our scriptures which one of these approaches seems to be the most accurate way for us to approach reading our scriptures to understand what they say don't worry I will give the answer before we go and then that's what we're going to unpack next week okay but, but, but read it and yes, there is a right, there's only one right answer here. <laughs> Just maybe take a pen and as you read it, put a ticker across. And then if you have multiple ticks, go and say which tick you think is the most correct one. I'm going to give a full five minutes for that. And then I'm going to take one or two questions and then we're done. Okay. So the kind of orthodox approach that we've kind of settled on across church, kind of most of church, a lot of church history and where we would land today in evangelical Christianity is number eight, grammatical historical. Okay, so that would be where we would land, that is where we as a church place ourselves, grammatical historical. And we're gonna unpack grammatical historical, the tools that we use and ways that we understand, but the heart of this is that we wanna understand what the author intended to be said. And um, that's kind of at the heart of when we use very normal language. We believe God wrote to us through normal humans in normal literary styles with normal words. And so, and that there is intent in them and the literary styles um, have an impact on how you read stuff. Obviously, you read poetry different to theology. And so that's kind of the high level. On the, but the heart is what did God intend to the original audience? And what does that mean for us? Okay. So that we're going to unpack more fully next week. We're also going to look at next week the redemptive movement or trajectory hermeneutics because that is one that is becoming quite popular um, nowadays and it is the one that allows a lot of shifting and changing of historically held positions is the redemptive movement traje um, trajectory hermeneutic, which is why we're going to speak to that and see why we see it as being insufficient to understanding what it is that God wants to say. So that's where we'll go next week. And um, I hope that was helpful. But guys, what I want to leave with is that this isn't a theology of Scripture dry. Now we all leave here going, oh, we have to obey this book. The whole, the whole thing about the Scriptures gets summed up in Psalm 1, delight. We, we're a people who should delight in this book, find joy in this book, not be intimidated by this book. It is clear God wants us to know his words. God wants to reveal his words. All it requires of us is humility and surrender and faith. It doesn't require academics. It doesn't require a PhD. It doesn't require massive knowledge beyond being able to read 
and trust that God is going to reveal this book to us. It's humility. Approach it with humility and it's going to cause delight and life in your life. And that's what this book is meant to be and that's what this theology should cause to rise up in us. Okay, I think we're done. I think we're out of time. We are out of time. I wanted to have some questions, but we don't have